Barbie, Ken, and Will Smith. What have they got to do with shoulders? Check out this episode to find out. I'm Amit Power. You don't need to know prime numbers to know that interscaling is numero uno. I'm Jeff Gadsden. And this is Block It Like It's Hot. Yo, 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 Jeff, we're back again, this time to drop episode 10. With tips cool like ice, you know it's going to get colder. It's time to talk all about numbing the shoulder. <laughs> hey, Jeff, how you been? <laughs> oh, my God, how do we even, how do I top that? That's great work on the, have you been working on your rapping? That's, that, uh, you, you are improving. But why do you? No, so the issue, <laughs> the issue I had is whether to, to try and do like, like a grime British accent or to go American. And I, I think I ended up in a hybrid. I don't even know what I am. I don't know who I am. Anymore. <laughs> uh, either way, colder with shoulder. That's, that's amazing. Uh, <laughs> good job. It, but I see you are practicing for our season finale where we, where we did promise to rap, I think. You, right? Well, you promised on my behalf. And, and then I suddenly start thinking, uh, I've got to do some work on this. Oh. So, so I've, be, I've been doing a bit of practicing. You're absolutely right. <laughs> Speaking of which, I better get on that backflip business. Oh, yes. The backflip was definitely a New Year's resolution um, that sounded almost yeah. unbelievable. So I'd be very, very interesting uh, to see that. Yeah, I think a lot of it's preparation, right? So I'm thinking about how to do a backflip. Uh, You're manifesting it, right? Right. Yeah, just I'm just visualizing it in my head. We'll see. Stay tuned. How you been? Listen, I've been good, man. Um, I've, uh, as usual, um, I've got some some lectures I'm supposed to be writing, and I always tend to leave them to the last minute. So I'm, I'm just battling that baseline level of anxiety that I have, you know, year round. It tends to come in swings. Uh, so yeah, I, I've got to get that sorted. And once I get those lectures done, I'll feel a bit more relaxed. But one of these days, I'll learn. But you know, apart from the usual stuff, um, I went to see a movie recently. I bet you can't guess which one I went to go and see. Was it Oppenheimer? You know, it probably should have been, but it actually was the Barbie movie. I went to go and see the Barbie movie. <laughs> that is so that is so on brand. <laughs> but you know, so, so so one of my daughters has seen it four times. Oh, wow. Yeah, I haven't seen it. It's a, is it good? Was it good? Uh, it's really good, actually. Uh, and I know, again, this is one of those things, a bit like the ESP block or like the Marmite blocks. There are some people that, that, that don't dig it, but absolutely, I loved it. Um, it's it deals with a lot of important uh, aspects and elements and uh, really, but oh, it re- no, it, re- it seriously that's not that's not what I would have thought you were going to say. No, it really does, but it does it in a way that makes you think. Okay, and also I've decided it's 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 influenced my wardrobe. There's a hoodie in there that I've got to get. It's kind of like a rainbow tie dye kind of hoodie, and it says I am Kenuff. Enough with a K in front of it to Ken. I am Kenuff. Kenuff. And, do yeah. you know what? I'm going to get that. Please tell me it's sleeveless. It's not sleeveless. Unfortunately, uh, Ryan Reynolds is like so buff. Um, so if it had been sleeveless, that would be a reason uh, that I wouldn't have got it. But this is like a big oversized hoodie type thing. So I can definitely rock that. The, the sleeveless stuff, not so much. There was a lot of um, six pack and chest exposure in that film. <laughs> uh, he's, I mean, yeah, good. And, Mar- and Margot Robbie. I I mean, she's amazing. Uh, everything I've ever seen her in has been, it's been great. So we'll get to it. Yeah, I how, what have you been up to? You know, it's been kind of a quiet, quiet time. We went and saw Mission Impossible as a family. That's like the first movie we've seen since. Gosh, I don't know when the last time we went to the movies was. It's been a while. So, so which which number is that? Is it, this is number 
four, is it? I've I don't I've lost track of which Mission Impossible. Uh, I think we're up to f- six now. Is that right? I think this is yeah, and and this is a part one of two. So you'd you'd give it you give it a thumbs up? Yeah, that was great. I mean, like Tom Cruise action movie. Come on, what's not to like? That guy, that guy is amazing. He just never seems to get older. He just seems to get sort of more athletic, more adventurous. It can reminds me of somebody. I can't think who. Um, but it reminds me of you, man. <laughs> well, I do all my own stunts as well. Uh. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. As we said, the, the, the backflip is, is coming up. Um, listen, man, we've had a, a few uh, questions and interactions from our previous podcast that we never got a chance um, to deal with. Right. Should we, should we do those? Yeah, let's do that. Some shout outs. So again, um, here's one from our friend. This is a really interesting one. This is from, um, from Mick Kerr again. He's getting lots of shouts out on the podcast. Um, he asked us a question directly, which is, what apps, processes and workflow do you use to keep track of your reading or knowledge? This is a great question. Um, have you have you got an answer for this? I think it's it is a good question because there is just so much now, right? And well, there's so much to keep up to date with. Yeah, I, I mean, a source of anxiety in my life is the ever increasing stack of unread journals that I keep beside my desk. Here, it's like oh, I feel so guilty. I subscribe to this journal but i never read it and uh, every once in a while i sort of like quickly uh-huh. shuffle through to see what i'm what i'm missing but one thing we do and this is more for the trainees but it helps it helps me personally too is we have a sort of compendium of must read articles uh-huh. that are sort of you know seminal or really instructive or good points or that, that sort of uh-huh. thing and then of obviously it's it's good to keep up with all the youtube type videos from like yourself and keijin and 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 mick and and other people that are doing great great work on in the video space so i you know i wish i i wish i could tell you that i had a one-stop solution for knowledge management but i don't do you no so it's really interesting so i um there's a number of things here one of them is how do you keep track of all the things that you want to share with people and one of the simplest things we did was we created a um an online folder so we happen to use dropbox but you could use google drive whatever and in that that folder we share with every regional anesthesia fellow that comes through and everyone whenever we come across a paper or, or an article or something that's useful that gets popped in that dropbox which will over time become a as you've got a compendium of knowledge and information and these are things that we've curated uh, and think are worthwhile reading so that's one process and um, in terms of how do i keep uh track of what i need to do this has been a source i'll use the term anxiety i don't use the term lightly because actually once you get to a certain level of busyness it's difficult to keep track of everything so i keep it really simple i have got a notes app on my phone which is called urgent things to do uh, and i will alter the level of priority depending upon deadlines and all the rest of it and the reason i've got that list is when you say yes to doing something sometimes you forget that you've agreed to do something especially if it's via email so the moment i agree to do a task it goes in that notes app i've got to have some way of one source because i used to have pieces of paper which you'd start off in my jacket pocket and my trouser pocket and then i'd lose a piece of paper and then i have that would be a nightmare and then i had a whiteboard i used to write on a whiteboard then i forget to update it so actually the thing i carry with me the whole time is my phone so yeah the notes app i find really useful mm. um and actually uh, you know dare i say it again it can be controversial but things like twitter 
are a great way of highlighting papers, certainly the early ahead of print, those type of things. Yeah, yeah. So the moment something comes out, if there's early access to it, I'll immediately bookmark it. So I use the bookmark function uh, on Twitter to save things to one side so that at least I'll know I'll come back to it. The question is whether I actually do come back to it. Well, hopefully I do, but I only bookmark things that are really important. So it's difficult. I don't have a perfect solution. Yeah, yeah, it's tough. I mean, there's just reams and reams of information that's flying at you at all times. If anyone has a good solution or a good workflow that they want to share with us, uh, please do. Yeah, absolutely, for sure. I'm desperately uh, looking for the perfect solution. Now, the other thing is we've got an, um, an amazing uh, emergency physician colleague from Australia. Her name is Kylie Baker. She's from Queensland, and she was asking a question about the block that we talk about a lot here, the block that may not be named. Um, she says, if using an ESP block for, for a chest drain insertion, do you keep local anesthetic back to anesthetize the pleura or how do we specifically anesthetize the pleura? Now, I'm guessing, Jeff, you may have been involved with chest drain insertion um, more recently than me, but, but but share your thoughts on that. Oof, it's been a while. Uh, when I was, a, when I was a, a PGY1 trainee way back in the day, uh, I did a thoracic surgery rotation and I was a basically the chest tube monkey oh right just went around ran around the hospital putting in chest tubes so i got really good at it uh and i remember you know we didn't use blocks for that we just anesthetized the skin and the muscle and the, yeah got down to the rib and anesthetized the periosteum and then tried just tried to jam a bunch of local around where you're about to make this incision in between the ribs but um so you did make a concerted effort to anesthetize the layer of the pleura before you punctured it right at least the parietal pleura i guess some local got inside the, the pleural cavity but but it's a good question that kylie asks i think part of the answer would be for me is uh-huh. do you believe that the esp block gets the visceral component and certainly there there yeah. is there is data to support that right so that's I, I think so. Personally, I'm a belt and suspenders kind of person. I do like to hedge my bets when it comes to keeping people comfortable. So I, I would do a little bit of infiltrating as well as an ESP block. Yeah, I mean, I think if I, again, I'm now talking theoretically, I hope it's been a long time since I've had to put a chest drain in line. I hope I don't have to do it in my regular regional anesthesia practice. Otherwise, things have gone very badly wrong. Um, but if I did have to do it, I think I probably would still put, certainly use local for skin infiltration, despite having done the block. Um, and I think I can't see any harm with putting a bit of local anesthetic just prior to passing the um, the catheter into the pleura. So I guess indirectly we both sort of said that we would, but as somebody hasn't done it regularly, um, you can take my comment with a pinch of salt. So listen, I kind of gave you a hint with the wrap what we're going to talk about, but I, I kind of figured today we talk about shoulders. Um, so you think we should start? Yeah, love shoulders. Let's let's do this. Okay, so listen, the thing that comes up a lot in exams is innovation of the shoulder. So if I think back to my sort of pre-FRCA days, the only thing I take on board is that yeah c5 c6 that was yeah, i've got that picture in my head the dermatomes that's what we need for shoulders right so we just need to take out c5 c6 is there any more to it than we need to know other than that well i yeah it i think it depends on your goals and, and what you're after but if you're if you're truly trying to mm-hmm. think through how best to provide analgesia for shoulder surgery 
and alternatives to you know the most common blocks, it, it is important to understand the innervation. And so there's dermatome. So what what is the skin that is overlying the shoulder that the surgeon is going to be cutting through? What are the osteotomes? So what, what innervates the humor, the head of the humerus and the distal clavicle and the scapula and the myotomes and uh, and so forth. So I, I I like that framework, and I think a lot of our trainees get sort of start and end at least in their early stages with dermatomes. Yeah. Okay. What what is the what's the skin innervation? But you know we try to encourage them. Now. I think about the muscles and the bones as well. But do, do you feel the same way? I do. You know, I have to be honest. When I first started learning uh, regional anesthesia, the first thing that was a bit of a um, an epiphany for me was to understand a bit more about that because definitely my knowledge stopped to C5 and C6. I never thought about osteotomes or sclerotomes uh, and certainly not myotomes. But the the one bit of knowledge that kind of was used to be thrown around as a statement was. Um, the suprascapular nerve is responsible for 70% of the innervation of the shoulder. That was a number that came out. Now, I know there's been a lot of work done by Philip Peng, and he's sort of questioned that statement, but certainly understanding that I should break it down into the individual nerves was was a real epiphany for me. So um, the type of you know, so the only two nerves I became aware of in the early days of my regional anesthesia training were suprascapular nerve and the axillary nerve. But you know, we now know there's lots more. Um, there's lot more, lots more to it. There's the lateral pectoral, the subscapular, and the supraclavicular nerves. And I think it's useful to know all of that, right? So I, I used to just focus on C five, C six, and now I think about those other nerves. So why why is it important to know this? You know, apart from academic uh, interest, why is it important to know that? What so do you think? Do, and also, do you quote seventy percent, or or do you think it's relevant that we don't really care what the number is? What do you, what are your thoughts? No, I do I do quote seventy percent. I and so just just to reframe that. So if you were to do a block at C five and C six, you can do awake shoulder surgery right like uh-huh. that is that is possible we, we do it every day that's the elegant thing about an interscalene or a superior trunk block uh-huh. for shoulder surgery it's just a small application of local anesthetic at that spot and you can do awake surgery on a major joint which kind of still blows my mind in a way uh-huh. right but then there there are when we'll talk about this, there are downsides, there are sort of pitfalls to doing a brachial plexus block that high up in the neck. And so I think of this similar to femoral block is to knees and how we've deconstructed the femoral block. And now we do an adductor canal block and the geniculars and the uh-huh. everything else. So you can, you can break it down into those individual nerves that are actually getting to the joint. Like you said, the suprascapular and the suprascapular is the, is the biggest one, I think. Yes. And the, the proof for me, is in studies that compare a single suprascapular block versus interscalene or a suprascapular plus an axillary nerve block versus interscalene. And they're not quite the same, but they're pretty close. Right? Yes. So to the, that, that tells me that, okay, those are the two most important nerves or suprascapular is the most important and then axillary may be the second most important. And then you've got your your other bits and pieces like the lateral pectoral and subscapular and it's branch from the musculocutaneous and that sort of thing. Uh-huh. I think it's important to understand that you can do shoulder surgery with just a C5-6 block. Right. But if you don't want to do that for whatever reason, you can get very good effects by attacking one or two of the five or so nerves that make up the shoulder. Well, the other thing that's really useful is I remember certainly when, again, my early parts of my training, there used to be the statement people used to say, um, you can't use supraclavicular brachial plexus blocks for shoulder analgesia. And that was just a statement that was made. It wasn't qualified. Um, and I, I, I really had to, to, to search for the answer. But again, this comes down to the principle that if you do a traditional supraclavicular brachial plexus block, 
you are blocking it once the suprascapular nerve has left the superior trunk. And for those of you who don't remember, C5, C6 come together to form the superior trunk or the upper trunk, and the suprascapular nerve leaves the upper trunk. So when you're doing a supraclavicular brachial plexus block, by definition, this suprascapular nerve will either be in your needle path, or but it should have left the plexus. That's not to say you won't get analgesia, and you may get some local antidote by proxy, but that's where the whole thing came from. So if you're going to do a superior trunk block, which we'll talk about later, it's really important that you block that superior trunk or upper trunk before the suprascapular nerves left it, right? I think that's that's absolutely correct. I think you have to be cognizant of where that's, that suprascapular nerve is coming off. And most times when I've scanned it in patients, it's not that far away. So I do feel that you... If you do, and I guess it all depends on volume too, right? If yeah. you're using 20 or 30 mils in the supraclavicular brachial plexus block. You're going to get it, right? I can't imagine. You're, you're going to get it, right? So, because it, spread, it spreads everywhere. I think part of the wisdom about, well, interscaling would be the gold standard or first choice single injection technique, and then supraclavicular would be a second choice, has to do with the spread to the cervical plexus too. Uh -huh. Certainly in the old days when we used... Uh, a gazillion mils of local anesthetic for our inner scalenes. What's your record, by the way? I think 50. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. I was yeah. going to say 40 for me, but 50 is okay. Yeah. And after the patient stopped seizing, then we would do oh, the God. surgery. Um, and now, and this is, this is pre-ultrasound. This okay. is, you know, back in the dinosaur days but uh you got every nerve in the neck you got the yeah. stellate ganglion you got everything so you got every nerve in the body man but we were doing though those blocks for quote-unquote awake shoulder surgery and so getting the cervical plexus is important for that if the surgeon's going to be you know making port incisions yeah. for rotator cuffs in the sort of cape of the shoulder where the skin is uh, you know being served by the supraclavicular nerves that's all to say if you were to do a supra clavicular brachial plexus block yeah. you might not get the cervical plexus in the same way that you would with interscaling so but these are these statements that used to be banded around during your training that were, were you know maybe passed down through folklore or, or based upon mm. some textbook evidence pre-ultrasound era and you know it's important that we challenge some of these things because that you know don't just let them sit out there in the ether um so i think so what i've got from what you said so far is um Interscaling is kind of the, you know, it's the plan A block for the shoulder. It's the bog standard and we can use it for most of our patients. But there may be some situations where we need to think about looking at some of these alternatives. And that's why it's important to know some of the other nerves that we've talked about, because we can use them as part of some, maybe some phrenic nerve sparing strategies. And, and we're going to get into that. And we're going to talk about a weak shoulder. And I'm looking forward to you sharing your recipe and tips and tricks at the end of the podcast. Um, but there's, let's get back into the main thing, right? So when I first started doing interscaling brachial plexus blocks, um, I used to do what one of our mutual colleagues um one of your mentors, Admir Hadzik, used to refer to as video gaming. Right. I used to go over C5, come back, go between C5 and C6, come back, go below C6. Right. So I used to do that whole thing. And that was very much an intraplexus needling technique. Um, I used to do it on awake patients. I used to do it on patients under GA. Don't tell anybody that. No, it's, I used to do it under GA and awake. But I was very aggressive. And actually now we don't need to do that at all do we? Um, there's an alternative to doing intraplexus, and that, that's periplexus. Do you think that's the default place? That's what we should be doing for every every interscaling brachial plexus block? I do. I do. Yeah. And that's, that's like you, I did interplexus blocks when I first picked up an ultrasound probe and 
stuck a needle in somebody's neck because it felt right. It felt like, okay, there's my local, like completely surrounding and, and getting all around each of those each of those nerve roots. But there was some work done out of uh, Dalhousie University in, uh-huh. in Halifax, Canada, showing um, that with a periplexus approach, which is, we'll just define this for, for the listeners. So interplexus would be inside the sheath. So between C5 and C6 nerve roots. And periplexus is beside the sheath. And so as you, you can imagine, as you inject, rather than the C5 and C6 sort of separating and being pushed apart, they get pushed medially usually because the needle is coming from lateral. So uh, we'll, we'll see that whole plexus as a sort of on block move medially. And so you're not technically inside the brachial plexus sheath. And, the, and what the Dalhousie group showed was there was a difference in cadavers in the incidence of intraneural, and by that I mean intrafascicular dye deposition uh, with a very, very small like 0.2 milliliters of India ink when they did these injections. So, so that was enough to change my practice. Uh, it's, I can point to a handful of papers in the course of my career with that have, that have changed my practice sort of overnight. When I read that one, I'm like, Oop, that's it. I'm no longer doing intraplexus because I just don't want to put someone at risk for an intrafascicular local anesthetic injection. How about you? Absolutely. Yeah. So, so actually, there, there was another paper um, with a similar vein that definitely changed my practice. And that was this up and down study looking at they did a periplexus injection first. And then assuming it was successful, the next patient, they brought the needle back a bit and they did the next injection. And then they kept withdrawing the needle within the body of the middle scaly muscle till the point that they got a block failure. And actually what they showed was in up to 50% of patients, they were getting successful blocks with the needle tip 8.5 millimeters away from the nerves. I'm not saying that's not a gold standard, but the point was it really emphasized the point that you can get a successful block just by being periplexus and being further away. So 100% that changed my practice. So I, you know, I do, I, I'm, I am an in-plane guy. Um, but what's interesting is my volumes of local anesthetic have definitely dropped over the years. So I used to be, I guess, the very first one I did with Octan, I used 40 mils back in the day and that felt uncomfortable. And then I was hovering around 20 and now I'm a prime number kind of guy. And this come from Gordon Lancelot. Prime number. Um, yeah. So he, 21 he, mils. See, bases. Is that... <laughs> 21 that's not a prime number though right <laughs> oh my god okay yeah yeah so, uh, fair enough math was math was never my strong point 19 19 yeah. is a prime number <laughs> that is brilliant so five seven five seven or 11 mils that's what i inject five seven i or 11 see mils. okay um, and it's just it's now become a thing so if i've if i've completed the block in uh in in i don't know six mils or like just going to put one mil more to make it a prime number and, and actually uh, the, i guess the point i'm trying to make is you don't need as much volume to get a successful block certainly when you're visualizing it under ultrasound how about you yes i agree um i i used way less i mean i just admitted that i used 50 mils at some point but our sort of typical volume now is between 15 to 20 i i can't remember the last time i went over 20 in interscaling it's, it's unnecessary. And we, there's data to yeah. show that in a CT image with dye, that, that injectate goes everywhere. And so if, you're, if your goal is, you know, I want this block to last as long as possible, then better to use a sort of a higher concentration, lower volume, and just yeah. put it in the right place. Just to get back to your point about that study 
where the, the up and down, where they pull the needle back and they were in the middle of scaling. I think that is illustrative of how local anesthetics diffuse through tissues. And I'd yes. love to see sort of a radio labeled image of local anesthetic yeah. in the neck and showing that it just, it spreads through tissues to, to, to get to all the different places. I, I will say our goal still is to not be in the muscle. Yes, 100%. So that, that shouldn't have been the take-home point yet. We don't want to be in the muscle, but that was just an illustrative point, right? Yeah. You, you, you can get a block. You can get an okay block if you're in the muscle because it'll diffuse. But it, we're trying to, or at least I'm trying to be between the epimysium of middle scaling and the plexus sheath. That's the ideal spot if, for between balance between efficacy and safety absolutely and now the other thing that i um i began to learn the more scanning i did is that there's some some cheeky guys that hide out within the middle scaling muscle and if you're an in-plane needler like myself it becomes very relevant and i'm of course referring to the dorsal scapula and the long thoracic nerve those are those nerves that kind of feature somewhere on that brachial plexus diagram that you draw and you never refer to again these are real nerves, guys. <laughs> They're real nerves, and yeah. they do important things. Um, uh, and actually, they hide out within the muscle. And certainly, the dorsal scapula is generally easier to see. Um, whether you and once you've got your eye in, you'll always see it. So that's a that's a real thing. Certainly, when we start scanning the next, we should make an effort to set to identify things that you may mistake as being fascial plane or blobs of fascia within the muscle. You can actually trace these structures up and down the muscle. So we've got to be careful when needling, right? Absolutely. And so I'm just trying to think out loud here. So if you had, if you're bringing a needle across a screen and you've got, you suspect there's going to be a nerve in your pathway, but you're not exactly sure where that nerve is and you can't really see it on ultrasound, is there a technology that might help us identify <laughs> that nerve? You know what? I just, it just occurred to me. Nerve simulation. That might be useful. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Call back to our pro pro con debate. <laughs> now that's a good point. I do I do have colleagues that like an out of plane technique, especially when they're threading a catheter because it just feeds easily. And 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 I, I had I fully admit that coming in plane from lateral and yeah. then expecting the catheter to make a ninety degree turn and then sort of head down the plexus is is challenging. And to your point, those you need to be careful of those those two nerves in the middle of scaling. Absolutely. So now let's, you know, we've, we've started off from the interscaling. Now we're going to move down a bit. So superior trunk. So this gained popularity and, you know, has annoyed some an, an anatomical purists because it's that we don't call it, you know, Gray's anatomy doesn't call it the superior trunk. It calls it the upper trunk. But upper trunk block doesn't quite sound so <laughs> exciting, does it? But yeah, uh, I wasn't aware of that controversy or the controversy. Uh, amongst anatomists wow okay yeah, that's that's a bit controversial i only know that because of the um the international delphies that we've done where it's kind of come up in discussion oh, okay. um, i can only imagine <laughs> but yeah the superior trunk block it sort of came about with this concept of bit you know we're we're not quite up at root level the roots have formed the superior trunk or the upper trunk we're a little bit further away and and one of the one of the proposed um, ways of using this block is to treat the superior trunk like a peripheral nerve. So you surround the whole superior trunk before suprascapular nerve leaves it as a uh, as a peripheral nerve block in a way. Um, and you know, there's a thought that it reduces the incidence of phrenic nerve block. What are your thoughts on that? So I do have a thought on that, and that thought is that any volume, any clinically useful volume of local anesthetic put at the brachial plexus above the clavicle will put your phrenic nerve at risk. 
it's a non-zero incidence. So if you're, mm-hmm. and, and honestly, you know, next time you're scanning the brachial plexus, find C5 and C6 and say, okay, this is where I do an interscaling. And then I'm not telling you this, Ahmed. I'm telling the, <laughs> I'm asking the listeners. That, well, you do tell me. I'm listening intently. To do, this, to do this little experiment. So find C5 and C6. Okay. And then slide down a little bit and find where you might say, okay, that's a superior trunk. Honestly, guys, that that is a one centimeter difference. And so, if you think, okay, I'm, my 15 mils here is going to cause phrenic nerve paresis, whereas my 15 mils here is not, I think I think you're fooling yourself. I think, but this is, and and I and I 100 percent take your point about 15 mils one you know one centimeter apart, or maybe less than a centimeter. But what about what about if you use lower volumes? So if you use a volume of less than five mils. Do you think it makes a difference if you put, say, four mils around the superior trunk or four mils in the interscaling brachial plexus block? I mean, I know I'm talking semantics here, but I guess the point we're trying to make is any significant volume anywhere in the neck is likely to cause phrenic nerve paresis, right? I, yeah, I think that, I mean, get, that we're getting to practical issues too. I mean, what are your goals for this block? Do you want it to work? <laughs> Do you want yeah. I mean, I, mean I, I, I look, I... I I've done a lot of nerve blocks in my time and I, I feel like maybe I could get a good block most of the time if I used four mils, but I want that block to, to be as effective as possible and to last as long as possible for shoulder surgery. So, I mean, I guess it depends. Are you, are you using it for anesthesia? Uh, in which case you've probably got less room to maneuver in terms of dropping your volume or whether you're using it for analgesia. And then as you say, how long do you want the block to last? Uh, if my my concern and my or my thought process when you might want to reduce your volumes are in patients where they have significant respiratory pathology or maybe contralateral diaphragmatic paresis and then you want to do everything you can to reduce the risk so if we don't do an interscaling and we don't do a superior trunk in, in block in those patients what about doing isolated suprascapular nerve so that's that's that has some legs. If I think the patient is at risk for complications, if I take out their diaphragm, so if the patient's morbidly obese, has restrictive lung disease, I don't so much care about obstructive lung disease because uh-huh. those patients with the you know with severe emphysema, their diaphragm is not really contributing much to their tidal volume anyway. Okay. So taking out the diaphragm is not going to hurt them as much. It's the restrictive lung disease person I care about. So if I make that clinical assessment and say, okay, I, I don't want to touch this person's diaphragm, I will not do interscaling or a superior trunk or a superclavicular. I'll choose something else. And to your point, I, I see two alternatives that I, I we teach our trainees. One is the suprascapular has to be involved because we we talk about this being the nerve that contributes the most to the to the shoulder joint mm-hmm. so i'm going to do suprascapular and i'm going to do it behind so on uh, in the supraspinatus fossa so you're literally moving as far away from the neck as possible so you don't want to do an anterior suprascapular nerve block underneath omohyoid you don't want to do that because you don't want to take the risk i challenge you to to prove to me that any substantial volume of local anesthetic that would give you a good block for shoulder surgery put underneath omohyoid would not would give you a zero percent incidence of phrenic nerve blockade i take you i sold debate one so you go to the back <laughs> and pop your local anesthetic in that supraspinous fossa yep and and so that's that's block one and i'll i'll always combine it with okay. another one oftentimes axillary 
nerve because it's it's very easy to to do. So I'll have the patient sitting up, sort of like you know slumped over. It's easy to feel the spine of the scapula. Put a probe on uh, on the supraspinatus fossa and see the the floor of that fossa. Yeah, yeah, the floor. It's really easy to see the spinal glenoid notch there yeah. and bring a needle down. And it's kind of like a peng block of the shoulder. So yeah, you see yeah. Bone underneath the muscle, hit the bone and and go. So easy to do, easy to teach, and usually easy to image, even in in larger patients. And the axillary nerve a little harder to image sometimes because of the just the um sort of ergonomics of putting the probe on the proximal humerus but then and let's just be specific we're talking about auxiliary nerve as opposed to auxiliary brachial plexus right you're talking about the auxiliary nerve correct yeah thank you that's i should have made that but yeah that's uh at the auxiliary nerve as it, as it winds sort of around the the neck of the humerus so those two blocks are, are a common combination that we'll do as a plan b for those patients who are at risk for pulmonary complications, can I make a can I make a confession here? Oh yeah, true confessions. <laughs> so the, the 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 posterior approach to the suprascapular nerve, I've kind of I've now got my head around that, and I've used that. You know, you go through trapezius and supraspinatus, and you see that little hockey sh- hockey stick shaped divot in the floor of the supraspinatus fossa. Boom, next to the artery, happy, done that. How is it that the the guy from the UK is making the hockey stick analogy and not the Canadian guy? I don't know. I thought I can't believe you didn't take yeah. that. But anyway. Okay. But my confession is the auxiliary nerve block at the poster aspect of the hum- of the humerus. I don't find easy. I find it a bit fiddly, certainly in patients who, well, actually, irrespective of whether they've got muscle, whether they've got sort of less muscular tissue at the back of the humerus, I don't always find it easy. So I need to somehow get myself on the uh, on the humerus and then slide my, my probe careful out or north towards that sort of light bulb appearance of the head of the humerus. But I, I don't find it easy to find, to find my probe position. I, I totally agree. And I think... Um... Part of the issue is the actual ergonomics of it because the patients, I got the patient sitting up, the arm is very mobile. Yeah. So as you put pressure with the probe from from behind, the shoulder tends to move forward and there's gel and it's slipping and I, and the humerus is not yes. that big. So it's easy to, to slip off and, and, uh, and lose your spot and then to, and you're sliding up and down. So I, I agree. I agree. It's, it's the harder of the two to do for sure. But how, Jeff, how do you challenge people that say, if you're doing your auxiliary block, once it's already left the posterior cord, by then it's too late. You've missed some of that vital innovation um, of the shoulder. You need to do it more proximally. Do, do you have an approach or a thought about that? So I, I don't disagree with that notion because I will say that doing a suprascapular nerve block and an auxiliary nerve block as it comes around the posterior part of that uh, the, the neck of the humerus, you, you're, you are missing some upstream fibers on that auxiliary so it, it's it's a compromise right and that's that's what we're doing here is we're, we're saying what's the next best choice if we can't do interscaling or superior trunk so there's another option that we teach our trainees which is to say if you think about all the nerves that we've talked about that make up innervation to the shoulder you've got lateral pectoral a branch of the musculocutaneous the auxiliary the subscapular nerves in addition to the suprascapular you can get those four in one shot by doing an infraclavicular brachial plexus block because everything comes off either distal to or at the site where you're doing that that uh, mm. that injection. So to put that another way, if you want to do a phrenic nerve sparing shoulder technique that gets the most bang for your buck, you can do a suprascapular back behind the shoulder and then an infraclavicular brachial plexus block. And then the only thing you're missing at that point is the skin. Um, of the yeah. 
of the cervical plexus. So you could you could do a cervical plexus, but being very careful yeah. not to get the phrenic. Otherwise, that would be a real shame. That would kind of defeat the whole yes. point. Yeah, so yeah, just just do a little subcutaneous injection there. But that, that would be essentially reconstituting your interscaling. So hold on, let, this, is, this is boom, mind-blowing stuff here. So let me get my head right. So you're saying if you want to do a phrenic nerve-sparing approach to the shoulder, do a suprascapular at the back, got that. But you're saying do an infraclavicular brachial plexus block. What, aiming to take out the whole infraclavicular brachial plexus or just the posterior cord? Um, yeah, yeah the, people have done both. I mean, so the, if you do it at the posterior cord, that's going to get most of what you uh, of what you need. But uh, ultimately, to get the entire thing, to, all the all the nerves to the shoulder, you you need to anesthetize all, all the entire area. Love it. Yeah. You heard it here, folks. That's great. Now, this is the next thing I want to talk about. So um, you talked about the cervical plexus or superficial cervical plexus as a as an entity, you know, that thing behind the poster, the midpoint of the posterior board of sternocleidomastoid when we do it with landmark, which you can visualize as this gumph at the back of the sternocleidomastoid on ultrasound. There's that word again, gumph. gumph. I love that. I got to use that more often. But, you know, one of the things I learned from Twitter many years ago is doing isolated supraclavicular nerve block so that's actually getting the medial um, intermediate and lateral supraclavicular nerve branches as they come off the superficial cervical plexus that's kind of next level scanning but i have used this for clavicular fractures and actually now i use this to augment my superior trunk block so actually what do you think about that do you use the supraclavicular nerves not the supraclavicular brachial plexus but the supraclavicular nerves as individual things do you use that technique so i i haven't i have to admit i haven't personally go, are you talking about going and scanning the supraclavicular nerves in in the subcutaneous yeah. tissue layer yeah yeah yeah, yeah i mean that's yeah. that's pretty that's some pretty fine scanning you're doing there. Um, well, there's a Canadian dude that taught me that. Chris Prabarka uh, taught me how to do that via Twitter yeah. with another chap from the UK called James Stimson. The two of those guys were sharing these videos, you know, early days, uh, old time videos. And I kind of thought, well, listen, I'm going to do that. And that's now become my favorite thing to find. In there. Yeah, that's really cool. And I think as ultrasound machines get better and better, we're able to see these little tiny cutaneous nerves uh and then pick them off but so i haven't i haven't personally I, i'll usually just do a cervical plexus block proper which of course most of that is supraclavicular nerves um but that's really cool but the reason i like it is i mean we're talking about one or two cc's yeah that, that that's what it takes yeah i mean so anyway that was that was my academic interest but guys there's a great video by vicente roquez uh, on YouTube that shows a really cool way of finding those nerve blocks. But the key is actually to trace up the neck till you see the C4 nerve root disappear into the transverse processes and then trace it down and you'll then start to see the supraclavicular nerves come off it. But I definitely recommend checking it out. All right, Jeff, before we take a little break, I wanted to ask you about three blocks that I've heard of that I have not used for shoulder surgery, but I want to ask your opinion on using it for shoulder surgery. One of them is the subscapularis plane block. Never done this. The other is ESP, and the third is PECs. Uh, <laughs> although I lie, I have done, I have done PECs for uh, for shoulder surgery in some cases. But tell me about your thought about that. Is there an episode that we will have where ESP does not rear its ugly head? I'm going to try my best to get it in every single episode. <laughs> <laughs> no, I shouldn't say ugly head. I, I I I'm not I'm not against the ESP. Um, ESP, yep, people have done that for shoulder surgery for sure. Cervical ESP, people have done that. It seems like a lot for me, though. It's like a it's a big thing to do for 
for something that's a bit more remote. I, I think I didn't get it. I'm guessing it's an attempt to again to provide a frenetic sparing approach to, and it reminds me a little bit of Andre Bozart's technique, where he would come from behind, from posterior, and come and hit the transverse process, and then sort of walk off oh, to yeah. get the cervical paravertebral for for shoulder surgery. That's not the same as the posterior approach of Pippa, is it? That's, is that different from Pippa? A very, I think I think it's the same. Okay. Yeah, I think it's very similar. Yeah, PEX I I have used for in cases where uh, PEX two. Or well, what's a new nomenclature? Do you mean pex two? Do you mean you do? Do you mean pectoserratus or interpectoral? Pectoserratus. Oh, okay. For for the axilla. Oh yeah, yeah. In cases where there's either a lot of axillary work or for some reason biceps tenodesis, if that's part of the shoulder procedure, they uh-huh. end up with this axillary pain that the pex block seems to seems to relieve. I have not done a subscapularis plane block, so I can't can't comment yeah nor nor have i so i, I want to hear from folks that have yeah I, you know I, I i don't know that um listen we we gonna take a little break here just to, to mix it up a bit you know i love my dad jokes <laughs> i know you love your dad jokes and um, and and bearing in mind we sort of started off uh the episode with a bit of a rap flavor i've got some suitably okay um, appropriate jokes so how do you follow will smith in the snow boom 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 um don't know. You follow the fresh prints. Oh, that's so good. Okay, okay. I got one more. That's a, that's a good that's one. A good one that's right? a good one, right? Okay. I got yeah, one more. Yeah, yeah. What is it called when a flatbread sings? Flatbread. Uh, no, I don't know. A pitter rap. Pitter rap. Peter rap. I know. I can hear people at home like falling, rolling on the floor, laughing yeah. or ROFF. <laughs> All right. Have you got anything for me? Well, yeah. No, I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with the theme here. So I know you're a Star Wars fan. Yep. Who is Han Solo's favorite rapper? Who is Han Solo's? Uh, you got me. Tupaca. Oh, that is brilliant. This is the perfect time when we need to get somebody to put that Chewbacca noise in in the background. That would be brilliant. There we go. There we go. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. Okay, okay. I love that. Anything more? Why didn't the fisherman make it as a big rap artist? Okay, no idea. His lines were okay, but his hooks were debatable. Oh, debate. It's the bait. Fishing bait. That is bait. literally from the bottom of the bait bucket. Lines, was, hooks, oh and God. bait in the punchline there. Just, just to, <laughs> just to point that out. Um, oh my God. <laughs> okay, listen. I think I think that, I think that people have felt enough pain. Let's get let's get back into it. We want to take pain away. Remember, that's the goal of regional these. That's right. So, so Jeff, you know, we we've talked about these. The, the hardcore, interscaling, superior trunk. Then we talked about break it down to fragments, suprascapular, auxiliary, infraclavicular, maybe even supraclavicular nerves. What's the ideal length of a block? I remember the old days when people would do a block and they'd check the patient in PACU or recovery and if they'd taken out the whole hand and the patient couldn't move the hand or the whole arm, they'd be like, yes, that block's amazing. And then they'd leave the patient and then forget that the patient has to deal with that for like 24 hours. So what's the ideal length of a block? How do we tie the block to the trajectory of pain related to the surgery? I, I have not had shoulder surgery, but I had friends that have, and it's not short, and nor is it nor is it mild pain. Rotator cuff surgery, for example, is very painful and lasts no. for several days. So I want to, I do want to extend that block as long as humanly possible. Unlike the lower limb, like for total knees and hips and stuff, where we have that concern about, well, how are we going to block them and allow them to walk out of the hospital 
I don't care about that with shoulder. Okay. They're going to be in a sling anyway. The shoulder, the surgeon does not want them to move and disrupt the repair. Yeah. So they're, they're cool if I, you know, block that shoulder out to, you know, three, four days. But I guess it depends on the type of surgery, right? So if you were having a subacromial decompression versus a revision rotator cuff replacement, those are very two different beasts, right? So true, true. Yes, absolutely. So it, um, and the pain trajectories will be slightly different there. So you have to be a bit thoughtful about, about that. But uh, but for really painful surgery, you want to cover as much of the pain as you can. Yep. And make it last as long as I can, for sure. So so that that takes us nicely into the role of adjuvant. So I'm, a, I'm going to say it up front before I hand it over. I'm an intravenous dexamethasone user. I don't use any other adjuvants. Do you? So you just to be clear, you use IV dexamethasone, not perineural dexamethasone. Okay. Yeah. Correct. Correct. And I won't say I use as in not on myself, but for <laughs> okay. my patients. I figured. Yeah, I, I, I do like dexamethasone. It's um. What do you guys call it? Decadron. De- Decadron is the brand yeah. name, but dex- dexamethasone is, I think, is a an excellent drug uh, for all kinds of reasons. Nausea, just making patients feel good. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Steroids make you feel good. Yeah. But and and there's you know we have good data to show if you use it irrespective of the route it probably helps prolong analgesia in a, in a couple different ways but uh so i i'll use it as it's sort of my go-to adjuvant getting back to that duration issue we have done tons of interscaling catheters okay for shoulder surgery i'm a big catheter fan i think that's in a remarkable way to deliver long-acting local anesthetic effect is titratable you can turn it up turn it down which is sometimes important for inner for right. shoulder surgery interscaling blocks because you could end up with unwanted side effects from that block so if the block is a little bit too much then they start to get a horner syndrome yeah. or a recurrent laryngeal nerve palsy and their, their voice starts to change or they just feel like oh my god my my hand is my hand is too numb i don't want this so you can turn it down and that sort of thing so you said a lot of catheters we don't do as many anymore the downside to interscaling catheters, yeah. it's just so close to the surface, that target zone, and the neck is so mobile that as the patient goes home and they're sort of moving their head around, we found the displacement rates were significant. Makes and sense, so, right? Yeah, they get home and then the, the, the patient will call you back. Am I supposed to be seeing the blue tip oh, you know, on the skin? I'm like, no, okay, that was, that, sorry, that got pulled out. We've transitioned to using a lot of liposomal pivocaine, which is here in the U.S. It's it's one of the indications for that drug is the interscaling brachioplexus block. So that seems to get us between 60 to 72 hours. Wow. But I will say we are using 20 mils of that medication and then 5 mils of half percent bupivacaine. So 25 mils total. And getting back to our earlier conversation about volume, that seems to be, it feels like a lot of volume. I feel a little bit right. like, Ugh, I'm, I'm using more than I need to, but that's the recipe that gets us at 60 to 72. Well, you know, it's interesting because uh, it, it's interesting because recently, uh, you know, I hadn't had a chance to use the drug, but I have used it recently. And, and actually, I didn't use as much volume as that, but I certainly use more than I, than I used to. And yeah, I had to make the effort to inject the volume. But of course, the thing I had to get my head around was of that larger volume of local anesthetic you're using, only the active component that you're admixing it with is the bit that's going to be causing the blocks. Although the volume is large, you're only putting in, say, for example, five cc's of active drug. So um, actually, they're not going to get 
15 or 25 cc's of active drug happening all at the same time so once I kind of got my head around that um, and accepted that I'm just de delivering it in a larger volume um, I was a bit more relaxed and I have to be honest I was um, yeah my, my first couple of uses there is no doubt that in, in my hands and that those limited experiences that actually it caused a definite prolongation of of sensory block so you know definitely lots to to look at watch that space but i think the key for me is if i can spare the hand and finger function as much as possible because i i think a lot of my patients mm. don't like the fact that the whole arm feels like a piece of meat so if i can give some retain some finger movement it makes them feel that the hand has still got some hope yeah uh, and then it reassures them that the hand's going to come back to life yeah yeah for sure i think that's important so and to me that's that's part of the reason I do favor the inner scaling over a more distal approach like supraclavicular. It just it seems a bit more targeted to just the shoulder. Any substantial volume in that in that space is going to get a lot of nerves, not just C5 and C6. Absolutely. Now, listen, we're kind of getting to the climax of the episode or what I consider to be the climax of the episode. And that's something that I don't do lots of um or very much of regularly and that is awake shoulder surgery i do lots of other type of awake surgery um uh, and if i had if you could see my hands i'm doing awake in uh, inverted commas here because there's a spectrum from being completely awake to being sedated i would be really interested to get your take on this um and to cover things such as the use of cerebral oximetry sedation yeah we uh i, I agree it there's, there's awake and is awake, and so we. I have done awake shoulder surgery with patients talking to me and uh, and making sparkling conversation, but most of the time they're getting some background propofol infusion to keep them from moving and, and from being aware of things. But uh, it's an excellent technique, and our surgeons use it as a selling point now. So they they'll tell their patients in clinic, "Hey, come get your shoulder surgery with me because." you can have your shoulder surgery, quote-unquote, awake. Well, I guess then at least you're pre-selecting patients who are keen. You're not having to convince them. They're coming to you because they want to, so there's a degree of motivation built into that process. Yeah, they, they're, they're primed already by the, by the surgeon in their, in their clinic to, to, to know that this is what they're going to get when they come. So, yeah, not a lot of salesmanship that has to be done on the, on the day of surgery, which is always nice. So I think one of the big concerns and considerations is the beach chair position and having patients with prior history of stroke or carotid stenosis or, or that sort of thing where, where you're concerned about cerebral perfusion. Mm -hmm. So you mm -hmm. mentioned cerebral oximetry. We don't, we don't do a lot of that. If, if there's a patient that I think is particularly at risk, I've done arterial lines and then put the transducer at the level of the circle of Willis. So I have a beat-to-beat measurement of what that brain is getting perfusion wise oh that's clever but there's been some good work out of hss to show that probably that concern is more theoretical than we give it credit for well I, well i have heard of some people getting unstuck when they were using blood pressure monitoring not at the correct level because every now and then somebody will say i'll do calf blood pressure readings because i don't want to interrupt my total intravenous anesthesia and that's an area of concern and then you've got to appreciate that measuring blood pressure at calf isn't the same as what's happening in the brain exactly if i was doing your shoulder surgery i i wouldn't be as concerned but if it's that person that's multiple vasculopathic sort of comorbidities that I'd, I'd be more likely to add an extra monitor Okay, Jeff, let's imagine that we've got Henry and Henry needs to have awake shoulder surgery. I really, really want to know what you do for this. Okay, I'm imagining it. Henry, awake shoulder surgery. Got it. 
Well, so I think the first question is, is Henry fit from a pulmonary point of view to get our plan A block, which would be interscaling? So okay. let's let's say he is. And, and and maybe we can do a, a second version where Henry's not. But assuming Henry's uh, able to get an interscaling block from a phrenic nerve point of view, we're going to do an interscaling brachial plexus block. And so typically, we will use a formula I mentioned a few minutes ago with the 20 mils of liposomal and 5 mils of half percent bupivacaine. And this is a periplexus block. We're coming in in plane from lateral aiming to just push the plexus away and, and layer it out beside C5 and C6. So can I just stop you there for a second? I've just got to get my head around this. So you're, the total volume that you're administering in this case is 25 mils, 25 cc's, right? That's right, yeah. But you're only using 5 mils of admixed um, bupivacaine. Correct. And that's enough? It, it, and that's enough? I know, it's it's a question we, we ask ourselves too. And it's like, is this going to be enough? And But there are people that, do awake shoulder surgery with very low volumes of plain local anesthetics. And so if you think about the the like a little bit of free fraction of bupivacaine that's floating around in the liposomal bottle, somehow it's enough to set things up in about 20 minutes. So you do need a little bit of time for it to cook, but then then you're good. Now, the other thing that we'll do with an awake technique is do either a cervical plexus block or specifically get those supraclavicular nerves by the clavicle so that that skin is is uh, by the acromion and where the where they're going to put the ports or the upper part of the incision is going to be covered depending on the volume and where you're putting your local for the interscaling brachial plexus you may not get the cervical plexus in the same way that we did with my old 50 mil technique back in the day <laughs> and, w- and when you're doing your supraclavicular um, nerve technique, if you're not doing the cervical plexus, are you just doing that with infiltration around the clavicle or are you doing a targeted supraclavicular nerve block? So I just, I'm a, I'm a simpleton, man. So I just, I just take my ultrasound probe and sort of look at the subcutaneous layer in the supraclavicular fossa and, and layer some local out there. Sometimes you see a little thing, you're like, oh, I think that's a nerve. But, uh, but I, 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 mm-hmm. I just, it's more like an image-guided infiltration okay okay and, and why do you think you need to do that just so just so we can all understand so it depending on if, it, if it's arthroscopic surgery versus open surgery either way there's a likelihood that the surgeon's going to need to put his or her knife or port through some skin that's supplied by the cervical plexus over top of the right sort right. of cape area of the shoulder so we failed that way when i was a resident i thought oh great interscaling block that's all they need and then patient goes ow and so oof okay i need to need to cover that skin on top nice and so since you've added that little tweak in you've managed to to reduce the chance of you having a you know a block that's not complete doesn't cover that whole area yeah exactly that's right so then we'll head back to the operating room and by this time i've already coached henry that uh hey we're, you're going to be awake you're going to be in a sitting position in the beach chair we're going to have your head kind of held in place by this this fancy uh, foam and strap apparatus. So you're going to be looking straight ahead, but we'll be talking to you and because that's what you wanted. <laughs> and then uh, this is usually patient preference, right? right. Like they, they come and they come and say, hey, I, I, I was told I could get a, a wake so- shoulder surgery and so this is what I want. So that's, that's cool. There's a wake and there's a wake. And we talked about this a bit earlier, but there we can do just a bit of midazolam and a, and a hint of fentanyl and, and have them quite responsive or run sort of low dose propofol but we're not talking about gawa because you know power doesn't like gawa 
Pawa no like Gawa. No, <laughs> no, no. I mean, you know, and we talked about the, you know, having to put LMAs in and yeah. in the beach chair position, which is, you know, not, it's okay, but it's not, not a great, uh, great default plan. But if I am running propofol, what I tend to do is put the blood pressure cuff on the calf. And that way they're not, uh, you know, every three or five minutes, um, the propofol is backing up on the hand and they start to move their arm because it's painful. And well, then, that's a big deal, right? Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, uh, you know, oxygen, capnography, some, all the monitors, and uh, away we go. You mentioned that you change things possibly if the patient has got some pulmonary issues. So I'm really curious to know how you can deliver a wake shoulder surgery for somebody who's got respiratory impairment. Yeah, and it's a, it's a little trickier, but um, so what we'll do, and we talked about this, how important the suprascapular nerve block is for this. And so that's, that's the first one we'll do behind uh, by the scapula. Then I'll do an infraclavicular brachial plexus block, and that will get most of the rest of everything else. And then we'll do a very careful cervical plexus block. And when I say that, or, or the supraclavicular nerves, when I say that, again, I'm cognizant of the risk of any local anesthetic spreading from where my cervical plexus block is to the phrenic because they're kind of close. And so there's the, we'll talk about it in another episode uh, about uh, cervical plexus blocks and deep and intermediate and superficial and what those all mean. But uh-huh. I will. this is a case where I'll do a very superficial one. I'm basically doing subcutaneous infiltration. So I, I reduce the risk of getting to the phrenic. And that combination, close as we can get to reconstituting your, your C5, C6, and cervical plexus block scenario for the healthy Henry. So it's a bit like knees, right? We're breaking it down into those small component areas. Yeah, exactly. Same themes, upper limb, lower limb. Listen, I'm really blown away by that. It's really interesting. And I think it may take me a bit of time to get my confidence up in doing a wake surgery using that. But what's key for me and my my biggest learning point is you don't just do the posterior cord component of the infraclavicular brachial plexus when you're doing the phrenic sparing stuff. You do a, an infraclavicular plexus block to t- kind of take everything out. And that probably makes a big difference. Yeah, and it, and it ends up with a different dynamic right so the patient with the inner scaling the patient can usually move their hand and use their fingers a little bit they may be a bit tingly but they can use their hand which is a satisfier for those patients in this other technique that i've just described they their arm will be out for some time so you just have to you know talk about talk to the patient about that and the only thing i wanted to get your um your thoughts on before we finish up this really exciting kind of awake uh, surgery component is the volumes of local anesthetic that you're using for the phrenic sparing technique so for the suprascapula at the back and for your infraclavicular what volumes are you using uh typically suprascap i tend to put 15 mils back there just um it's probably more than you need but i it's what i've always used and it seems it seems to give you the the right duration and uh, and onset uh-huh. as well so and then infraclavicular, uh, I tend to use about 20. And so that's, now you got 35, um, but in two different spots. And cer- cervical plexus, you know, that's a, that's a couple of mils, really. Amazing. Jeff, thank you so much for sharing your, uh, your awake recipe for Henry. I'm sure Henry's going to be very happy. And it sounds like one of the things that's key is making sure that patients are fully informed as to kind of the dynamic and how it's going to, how it's going to go with their head and their strap and everything. So listen, I think I think we're done, man. We're going to wrap up this episode. Yeah, yeah, I think that's it. That was this is fun. 
enjoy this well listen man why don't we wrap up episode 10 um listen guys thank you so much for taking the time to follow in and listen to what we're talking about you know the deal please like subscribe and rate our podcast from your usual podcast provider wherever you get it from and let us know what you want to talk about next and you know what we've got a few various means of social media that you can follow us on what have we got jeff got uh, twitter at block it underscore hot underscore pod got youtube at block it like it's hot and, and yes. I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it this time. Okay, okay. I'll you spare you this. the uh, Insta, Instagram, block it under block underscore it underscore like underscore it's underscore. <laughs> we got to change this hot. Um, and don't forget our hashtag hashtag block it like it's hot. Yeah, let us know what you guys are doing for shoulder surgery and um, and if you're doing anything cool, innovative. You know, we want to hear your thoughts. Absolutely. Until next time, we hope you all block it like it's hot.